God bless you, saints, this evening, and welcome to Hickory Bible Tabernacle. Uh, it's good to see you all this evening, and uh, trust that you are all well, and uh, just looking forward to a little time of study. We changed up the order of the introduction of the service tonight, and just had a little pre-service kind of music there, just for you to be able to relax a little, and to be able to get your Bible out, and get ready. Uh, the title is on there, uh, which is the subject of our default. And this is the second part because I wanted to uh, tackle a little question that we created last Wednesday night. So uh, we trust that you're ready to go and uh, we're going to jump right in. But before we do, let me give you a couple of prayer requests uh, right from the very beginning here this evening. And then we'll offer a word of prayer. Uh, today is Sister Cindy Walter's birthday. And Sister Cindy, God bless you. Uh, we trust that your best year is ahead of you. Sister Carol Hindley is still in the hospital. She has moved out of ICU. I had the privilege to go and see her on Monday and spend some time with her. Uh, she is uh, still unable to talk, unable to swallow. And uh, she was doing okay on the, the first day and then started to decline. And Sister April went uh, today, Sister April Grant went and just about spent the whole day with her and was talking with the doctors and the nurses and so forth. And she got a uh, nice complete update for us. And apparently Sister uh, Carol had had some seizures and that caused her to relapse a little bit. And uh, it's not totally unusual for that to happen in her condition, uh, but they are starting some anti-seizure medication. And so we just trust that the Lord will continue to give her strength and get her off that medicine and get her back uh, mobile again. The idea that they uh, actually, when I was uh, on Monday, when I was there, uh, at the end of the day, they had gotten her up. She had walked several steps across the room and she was able to sit up in her chair. So they were very happy with that. After that, then she had the seizures. They're hoping uh, maybe uh, tomorrow or the next day to get her back up again and to start doing uh, physical therapy again. So if you could uh, continue to remember her in prayer, that would be uh, wonderful. And uh, just uh, continue to do that every day. Um, we also want to remember uh, Sister Anna Pritchard. want to remember Brother ben, ben McCafferty. who had a couple of rough days, and we want to remember Brother Ben. Uh, we want to remember Sister Amber. She's feeling better. She's at home now. And uh, want to pray that God will continue to heal her and give her uh, stability again. Then also we want to remember uh, Brother Tim Pruitt's church, Brother Jason Jackson's church, uh, Brother Ron Spencer and his church. Brother Ron is undergoing some tests over at UVA again. And so we want to remember uh, them in prayer and also specifically for Brother Ron. Also as well, Sister Greg, uh, she's been moved to a new place in her uh, residence. And so uh, we want to continue to remember her. Also as well, uh, Brother Josh Godwin and his search for a job. He's in the process of doing that. And uh, we trust that the Lord will uh, undertake for him. So I know that you also have requests as well and needs on your heart. Some of them that uh, nobody knows but you. But we can't really say that that's true because the Lord knows the uh, thoughts and intents of the heart. And so we just trust and pray that uh, the Lord will meet your need now. And uh, I think um, 
that we should just draw near to him now as we begin this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can call you Father. We are grateful that we can say that we are saved and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are so glad that we can say that we've been justified as though we never sinned in the first place. And now in the name of Jesus Christ, we commit this time of fellowship into your hands. I pray that you would just bless and minister to each and every heart. I know, Lord, that you care about what we're going through. I know, Lord, that you care about these churches that are suffering and this cursed virus, Lord, that has caused the bride of Christ to uh, have to uh, refrain from fellowship. And Lord, we just stand against it and pray that you would minister to those who are sick and needy tonight. And we pray for all of those uh, pastors, Lord, who are leading their assemblies tonight. Father, we pray for these special needs that have been mentioned. We think of Sister Carol again tonight, Lord, and we know that her body is fighting to survive and to live. And we ask that you would just give her strength, Lord, and complete recovery. And we commit every one of these needs and every one of these unspoken needs, the ones that I don't know about, we commit them all to you now with confidence. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And amen. Now, I'm going to read two passages of Scripture. One we have read uh, last week where we talked about this lip of truth. And the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 12, chapter uh, 12, verse 19, that the lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. So you remember uh, we talked about the lip of truth. It was a, like a barrier, like an edge of something. And uh, we know that uh, truth is, is truth and it is not able to be changed at all. Uh, it doesn't depend on human intervention, doesn't depend on circumstance, it doesn't depend on our feelings about things. And so therefore, there is a line in the sand when it comes to truth and God has established his word. And so therefore, um, I just want to read another little passage of scripture here that's found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, we'll read at the end of the chapter, verse 14. Paul writes, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. And neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, I need you to hang on to that little uh, phrase there, that uh, neither can he know them. That's more than just an intellectual knowing. Uh, anybody could take the Bible. Anybody could pick up the Bible and read it. But when it comes to really understanding what it means or being able to place it together, that's a gift that comes from God. That's a revelation that only he gives. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. All right. Now, if you have your phones ready, we want you to be uh, attentive there. And if you see something that's worth saying him into, just uh, plug it in there. And uh, we appreciate uh, appreciate you doing that very much. We have lots of people who listen, and uh, it's always great to hear from you. Now, here's the question, and, and we want to we wanna deal with this tonight. And we'll also uh, plug it into an example as well so that you can look at it. Uh, that's the way I've been defining this idea of default. Now, by definition, the word default means a pre-selected option that is adopted by a computer program or other mechanism when no other alternative is specified by the user. So, for instance, when you open up a new computer or even a new phone, there's a background that's there 
uh, it is the default background. And it doesn't mean that it has to remain that way. It only means that that's the way it's been set. And you have the option to be able to go in and change that so that you can put your own personal picture or something else that you want to make as your background. And uh, that is the beauty of something that is set up that way. You have a choice. Now, the question, though, um, arose, and just in pondering this whole thought, what's the difference between a default and an absolute? Uh, aren't they the same thing? Well, not really. Because a default is something that you have a choice in terms of changing. You can change a default specification or a parameter. You can say, I don't want this for my uh, opening screen. I want this. Uh, we can say about our beliefs that, uh, you know, all of us probably believe that Eve ate a, an apple in the Garden of Eden. That was the default understanding about the original sin. We didn't really think about uh, serpent seed and all that it implied. But the Holy Spirit comes along, and he's not willing that uh, the people of God remain in ignorance and darkness. And so he gave us a, an updated uh, understanding of the Word of God. And we have the choice as to whether we want to accept that as a default or leave it as we have always known it. And so a default can be changed. But an absolute, by definition, is a value or principle which is regarded as universally valid or which may be viewed without relation to other things. So it is an absolute truth that stands on its own. It does not need to be voted on. It does not need to be uh, changed because of circumstances. And neither do you get an option as to whether you're going to go in and change the meaning of something. And so an absolute, as Brother Branham has defined, and of course Brother Branham ministered many times about the absolute, it is the last word. It is like the opinion of the Supreme Court. There's no other higher court to appeal to. And so therefore, what the Supreme Court decides in relation to the Constitution and according to the laws of the land, that's the way it is. And uh, it, it is important that uh, you know the Supreme Court hold to the guidelines and parameters that they have in making decisions. All right, so uh, a default can be changed, an absolute cannot. Let's go just a little further with the whole definition of an absolute, because I think this is good. Absolute truth is something that is true at all times and in all places. It is something that is always true no matter what the circumstances are. So it doesn't matter whether we are living in good times or bad. It doesn't matter whether we have strong feelings about something or we don't. It is a fact that cannot be changed. For instance, these are some examples here. There are no round squares. You cannot have a square that has no corners to it. Or we'd say 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's a fact. It's an absolute truth. We can also say that there's enough DNA in the average person's body to stretch from the sun to Pluto and back 17 times. That's a fact. It's a little difficult to prove, but nonetheless, it is a fact, and it doesn't really depend on how you feel. It doesn't even uh, depend on... Uh, any circumstance or any condition in the atmosphere. It is strictly a distance. One way or another, these are all truths without consideration of circumstances, feelings, or persuasion. So they are, uh, they are absolute facts. Now, let's just say, uh, going back to the quote we had last week that in, the, in the sermon called Micah the Prophet, and it said that all true prophets, all true Christians, all true believers stay with the word. No matter what anybody else says, you stay with the word. Now, 
I want you to think about that for a minute because this is a dilemma that we uh, that we uh, talked about in the very beginning here. Because there's a lot of people who will say to to you, "Oh, I believe the message," but that doesn't mean that they have the uh, the truth or the true understanding of the message. They may have some other opinion. They may have uh, maybe have some sort of a uh, an interpretation that's been given to them. Uh, they may believe something, uh, you know, other than what Brother Branham actually taught because they have been persuaded that way. And, uh, you know, there are people that believe, for instance, that polygamy was permissible. In our time, that per- polygamy was pol- permissible. And they base that belief, and I knew people who believed that way, uh, they base their belief on quotes and scriptures and tied it together and uh, made it sound very true, but it wasn't true. That was their default understanding, but their default understanding needed to be changed. And so all true believers, all true Christians, all true believers stay with that word. So we want to make sure we've got the right interpretation of things. We want to make sure we're believing according to the absolute of God's word. First Corinthians chapter 2 now, as Paul writes here and we read in our text, uh, we we have the mind of Christ. So it is not just the literal Bible, the literal reading of the word that we have. When you have the mind of Christ, there is a distinct advantage because you will know things that an ordinary reader will not know. The mind of Christ instructs you and guides you into truth, which is what Jesus promised, because he said when he goes away and the spirit of truth comes, and he would guide you, the, the spirit of Christ would come and guide you into all truth. Well, we want to explore that just a little bit this evening here and see where that, uh, where that takes us. Brother Branham says it this way in 1961. He said, I lost my mind to the things of the world to receive the mind of Christ. Therefore, if I have the mind of Christ, my mind seeks those things which are above, period. You remember, uh, I've mentioned many times recently how Jesus taught the disciples to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we have the mind of Christ, we're going to seek the way things are done in heaven, that we can do them or duplicate them on this earth. We can actually act like the Father. We can act like, we can act like Christ on this earth, because we have the mind of Christ, which seeks those things which are above. So we're not looking at any earthly pattern. And that's the thing that differentiates uh, the mind of man and the the mind of Christ, is that your mind is influenced by, it's seeking, or it's looking at something that people in the world are not looking at. Okay, so for instance, when it talks about the future, if you talk to somebody today and say, you know, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Their mind would immediately go to, uh, you know, uh, the election, uh, the end of the year, the virus when it maybe settles down. They would go to a future that they could see. When when somebody asks us and says, well, what do you think is going to happen in the future? We're going to go to the Bible because the Bible declares the things that are written in heaven. So that's the difference. Our, our mind is seeking something different. Our eye is on something else rather than what we can see. And when we do that, we're actually living by faith. And that's the way that we're supposed to navigate. So Brother Branham is, is giving us a difference here. If you have the mind of Christ, your mind is on another kingdom. Your mind is on another principle that's being displayed in another dimension that you seek to duplicate in this world and in your own life. 
So you want to have a godly family. Well, you're going to look to, uh, you know, our Heavenly Father who has uh, direction about a, a godly family in this world. My goodness, you're not going to look, uh, you know, in a psychology textbook or you're not going to look in, you know, on television to see how families operate today. Absolutely not. Because the way that families are being portrayed today is coming from something very different. They're looking at something very different than the kingdom of God and the Bible in order to get scripts for their television shows. It is not a godly script. So Brother Branham says, I'd like for somebody to show me any different correct baptism besides the name of Jesus Christ. Stop. So when Brother Branham came along and wanted to baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what was he looking at? He was not looking at how everyone else was doing it. He was looking at the word of God. He was looking at the word that comes from the kingdom. Brother Branham says, I'd like for somebody to show me a scripture that says a serpent didn't have a seed. What's he looking at? No one else in the world practically is declaring that serpent seed is true. He's looking at something else. He's not looking at the way every other church operates. He says, I'd like for somebody else to show me a scripture that says there are three gods. Hey, just about everybody believes in the Trinity. And you are an oddball if you don't. And he's not looking at that for a definition. He's not looking at that for an absolute. He's got the mind of Christ, which means he's looking at the word of that kingdom. He's looking at the direction that comes from that kingdom. And so that's what, that's what the mind of Christ is. It is that which seeks the things that are above. And we look for those things while we live on this earth. It's not just, I wish I was there, I wish I was there. It's rather, Lord, show me from your kingdom what your will is, that it might be done on earth, that it might be done here. And that's what we desire to have, the mind of Christ, so that we can know how to live uh, for Christ and through Christ in this world that we're living in. All right? So, again, here's the, uh, here's the scripture that we open up with. Now, I want you to take note of the, uh, the last verse here, 16. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? Now, watch what this says. Here's the meaning of the word instruct, and it means to, it, it's like the word in our English language, knit, to cause to join together, to put together, to knit together. Uh, I, I often remember my mother and my uh, wife, they would sit there with a ball of wool, and it's just a big, long string of wool, and they would kind of knit that together and make a scarf or a hat or a sweater. It was amazing the things that they could make. Even my grandson, one of my grandsons is a knitter. And uh, uh, does very well uh, with the knitting all together. But it's it's a bringing together or putting together something that that at present is not uh, a part of anything. It's just just a single strand. The definition goes on to declare that it means to put together in one's mind. In other words, when somebody is instructed, now all of a sudden something makes sense. I can compare it to other things. I can make the right conclusions. In the last part, to cause a person to unite with one in a conclusion or come to the same opinion uh, and and to prove and demonstrate that. So, in other words, if we have the mind of Christ and if we are to instruct, if we are, are ones who are instructed, for instance, then we're going to come to the same opinion about things as Jesus Christ. Whatever he likes we would like whatever he hates we would hate whatever he pers whatever he would deem to be important in our life 
that's all we would deem to be important. For instance, it is important to forgive because when we are forgive when we forgive, then we are forgiven by him. And so therefore, we have a we have a strong feeling about forgiveness because uh no matter what somebody does to us, we want to be quick to forgive because that means that we will be forgiven ourselves. So therefore, uh that is an example of being instructed by the Holy Spirit that we put things together and come up with the same opinion that he has. So how he views it, that's how we view it, okay? Here's an example of that word. And straightway, this is Paul after he was converted, okay? He's after the uh, road to Damascus. He's healed of his blindness. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed. And they said, is not this he that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent? that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest. Isn't this Saul of Tarsus? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Jerusalem, proving that this is the very Christ. So the word proving there is the word instruct. And it means that Paul took scripture verses and immediately in uh, the, the first days or hours of his ministry, and this is what God had anointed him to do, was to take the scriptures that pertain to Jehovah of the old and to declare Jesus of the new. And immediately after his conversion, immediately, this is what he's doing. He's proving that this is the very, very Christ, the very Messiah, that Jesus truly did raise from the dead, that now we are forgiven and justified, covered by the blood of the, the cross. And, and Paul is proving that this is the very Christ. In other words, he's, he's, he's into that mode. He's anointed to instruct and to bring the picture together into something that it was not clear before, but now Paul is making it clear by the Old Testament scriptures. So that's what that word instruct means there. Now, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16 there that uh, we have the mind of Christ. Now, this is a very, very strong word. It's a very powerful word. Uh, and you can read through the definition here. Uh, I don't need to read down all through it, but uh, it, it, is, it is that uh, faculty or ability uh, that God gives a person. Now, this is not learned. You can't go to a school and learn this, uh, and neither are you naturally inclined this way. This is something that God gifts a person with, that to be able to look at, at, at the scripture, to look at modern events, uh, to look at a, an, an act of God or the action of the Holy Spirit. For instance, if you walked into Brother Ram's meetings and you saw what was going on, it would be that in the, in the third paragraph there, the power of considering and judging soberly, calmly, and impartially. So in other words, if you walk, if you were a sinner, stranger, you walked into Brother Bram's meetings and you sat in the back and you look at it and you just said, okay, I'm going to stay neutral. I'm not going to have one opinion one way or the other. Uh, I'm just going to observe this and I'm going to see what, uh, what this is all about. And you began to consider and looking at that. And then you began to compare the scriptures. It is a particular mode of thinking and judging thoughts, feelings, purposes, and desires. It's a particular mode of thinking and judging. Let me tell you, we would not even know what to judge, let alone how to judge, unless we had the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't really know, uh, how, do we, how do we figure out whether something's right? How do we figure out whether this man, William Branham, is right in his gift and in his ministry, 
unless we had the mind of Christ. How would we know whether his teachings are true, according to the Bible, unless we had the Holy Spirit? How, how in the world would we be able to come to a right conclusion unless we had the mind of Christ? We would not even know uh, what's, what's important to God. You wouldn't even know what's pleasing to God without the mind of Christ. So you can see everything revolves around this. Everything depends upon this. It is that faculty of perceiving and understanding and to make the right determination. And that's what it is. Let me give you an example here. Luke chapter 24. This is Jesus after he's resurrected and he comes through the wall and he's talking to his disciples. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you in another body, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So in other words, he's looking back at all of those different scriptures that just laid there, and then opened he their understanding. He gave them that unique capability of coming to the right conclusion that they might understand the scripture. The ability to understand the scripture comes from God. The ability to be able to piece it together does not come because you have a good pastor or because you, uh, you know, been in a message so many years it has nothing to do with it. When God opens up your understanding, he's putting together the word of God into a clear picture. Brother Branham talked about his ministry in the last day, and he talked about loose ends. In other words, there are things out there that are still relatively uncertain. They are questions. And here he is taking those things by the gift of God given to him and putting them together. Psalm 27, 1 John, uh, different John chapter 8, and he's looking at serpent seed and he's putting those scriptures together. He talks about the end time and he talks about Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, Luke 17, puts all those things together. Revelation chapter 10, putting them all together. And it's not just a random picking of scripture. He's actually got the mind of Christ. He's, he's looking at something we don't see and bringing that together into a picture. And then all of a sudden, uh, it's, if you like, in our vernacular today, it's an aha moment. It's a revelation that, ah, this is what those scriptures actually mean. That is the opening of your understanding. That's what you need to have in order to have a clear perception and an understanding of the word of God. Let me give you another concrete example. <clears throat> Over this last few days, uh, when, uh, sister Carol Henley was in the hospital, uh, Sister April has been very faithful and consistent in helping us to understand what is going on. Um, she's talked to her uh, uh, sister Carol's family, her son and daughter, uh, to her grandchildren, and uh, myself and some other uh, folks that are close to the situation. And taken, you know, the doctor says, okay, uh, this is what the symptoms are, and this is what we may do, this way, what we may not do. Sometimes what's, in, what's really interesting and what's important is what they're not telling you, and sometimes what it is that those circumstances or symptoms really mean. And you know what? I don't have years and years and years of training. Uh, I just have, a, I have enough knowledge to be dangerous, but I, 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 I sometimes, you know, you just rely on somebody who can break that down, put it together, and give it to you in a way that you understand. That's really beneficial. That's really beneficial. Because then you know exactly what's going on. And so this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Word of God, in a sense, is written in a veiled format. And you would never understand or have the real complete understanding unless the Holy Spirit gave it to us. I'm so glad for the fivefold ministry. I'm so glad for a prophet. I'm so glad for the understanding that God gives. It is truly 
his great gift to the people of God. Now, watch what Brother Random says. If you've got good reasoning, you'll sit down and try to reason out the Bible. Well, how could he raise from the dead? How could these miracles and miracles and things take place in the great realm of civilization, science that we live in? In other words, if you have natural reasoning, if you're a logical type person, you would sit down and you'd start to figure that, try to figure this out and say, well, how could this be? And how, how could he turn water into wine? How could he raise someone from the dead? How could he multiply loaves and fishes? You try to reason that out, you're just getting farther away from God all the time. Uh, I, I was listening to somebody recently explain, uh, and and this was uh, this was a, uh, like a, a podcast or something, and it was somebody trying to explain how David actually killed the giant. And they broke it down to where they said that uh, Goliath was a, a, a giant who was, um, his, his genetic structure was, uh, you know, one that, uh, caused him to be a giant or they called giantism and therefore he had certain weaknesses his head was bigger so it was an easier target and he had certain weaknesses and basically david could have hit him anywhere like hitting the side of a barn door and he would have died anyway because of the condition that uh, goliath was in and i thought how stupid uh because he's missing the whole point this really had nothing with goliath's physical condition uh, Goliath was a man of war, had killed many people. And so the great thing was what David did by faith. Uh, David ran out on the field and took only five stones and rejected the natural armor that Saul gave him and all the other facets of this story uh, that are fantastic. And I thought, wow, that's just such a carnal, logical interpretation of a really great story to bring it down on a level that doesn't really even make horse sense. And I thought, wow, what a waste of time to uh, try to put forth an argument like that. And Brother Random says, you try to reason that out, you're just getting farther away from God. You'll never know him by reasoning and logic. God is known by faith. You accept it, you believe it, you can't do it until something happens in you and the Holy Spirit comes in and you have the mind of Christ. So for you that understand the Bible and you understand the Word of God like you do, let me tell you, you are greatly blessed, you are truly blessed to have the mind of Christ, because the mind of Christ opens the floodgate to the understanding you have of the Bible and the message and the times we live in, and it gives you confidence and faith because you know exactly what's going on. It's just like it's just like the doctor sitting next to you explaining to you in, in your terms you can understand exactly what's going on with the patient, and that's a great thing. I think we are truly blessed. Now, Romans 12, and we find it here again. I'm, I'm going to move on in a second here. This is a very common scripture I've read to you many times. We should know it by heart. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, as you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And in, in, in conducting your life in this world, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is a complete change for the better. That's what that means. When you're, when you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, it means a complete change for the better that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You would not know what is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God unless you had the mind of Christ. You would not, you would not be transformed or completely changed for the better unless you knew what was better. Because there's lots of people that, hey, listen, there's people in Africa who feel like uh, it's a good thing to eat your neighbor. And they're headhunters, and they, they still live that way. 
that's not the better way, but that's their default. That's the way they've grown up. That's the way they live. And the word of God transforms you. The spirit of God in you transforms you completely changing you for the better so that you can prove and live out what is the good, acceptable and perfect will of God. And everybody said, amen. Everybody texted. Amen. All right. Well, let's just proceed on and let's make a, a look here because I want to try to get to something, an example here so that we can understand this. Any word that God says, it cannot be changed. Now, that's the reason I believe the Bible, the way it's written, it can never be changed. We find nothing better. God cannot. He's infinite. We are finite. So he's describing what an absolute is. It is something that can never be changed. It is true in itself. It doesn't depend on our opinion. It doesn't depend on time. It doesn't depend on uh, circumstance. It is true, whatever the circumstance. We make mistakes, and tomorrow we know more than we know today, but not God. He is eternal and infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. It's like those on the road to, Dema uh, road to Emmaus. And, uh, you know, when they were explaining to Jesus what was going on, they say, are you a stranger in Jerusalem and you don't know? I've mentioned this to you before. And here was Jesus, the only one who really did know what was going on in Jerusalem at that time. So we can learn and we can think we know. We can have a default understanding. That does not mean it's correct. It's only when our default compares with the absolute do we know it is correct. That's an important statement. It's only when our default understanding, what we believe, compares with the absolute, can we be certain that our default understanding is correct. Let me add a little piece here and say this, a footnote. Don't hang on to your default like an absolute because God may add something to it. God may tweak it. God may embellish it with more understanding. So don't say, well, this is my belief, and so therefore it's right. You be prepared that the Holy Spirit may add to your default understanding so that it matches perfectly the spirit and intent of the Word of God, the absolute. Okay? So that's why uh, Solomon said, the lip of truth shall be established forever. God's got a line. Cross that line is truth. Cross the other side of that line is error. And that is established God knows exactly what he means. That's exactly what he's going to accomplish. Now, <clears throat> let's, let's just give an example, okay? And I alluded to this on Sunday uh, in the sermon when I talked about the cause of trouble. Now, our default understanding, and, and this, is, this is really a natural thing, and I'm not being critical here, but our default understanding is that if a person is undergoing a calamity, if there's tragedy in the house, then there must also be sin in the house. If there's trouble, or if there is, we use the expression, if there is smoke, there has to be a fire somewhere. So we default to this understanding and say, well, um, you know, th there's had to be something in Job's life that really got God upset and, uh, you know, made him vent all of this frustration and anger on Job. And yet we know that's not true because in the Bible, it says that God considered Job to be the most righteous man in all the earth. 
So God was not critical of 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 Job. Uh, it, it says that. Uh, Matter of fact, if you go back to Job 1 and in verse 1, it says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. It's almost like he has the mind of Christ, and he knows, he, he knows hey, uh, God means what he says, and I don't want to violate it. I don't want to cross that line. I don't want to go across the lip of truth here and into something false. He He's, a, he's, he's concerned about making sure he does everything right to please God. He is considered by the word of God and by the mind of God, he's considered perfect. And then calamity strikes. Let me give you a little piece of advice right in the beginning here. You should be slow to judgment. You should be slow to speak when it comes to calamity. We have a family in our church who has gone through, we have several families that have gone through tragedies recently. Uh, we, we have some families that have incurred great loss and disruption in their routine and loss of, of several different ways. And sometimes it's easy to go in there and start to say, well, uh, gotta be this, or it's gotta be that. Um, I think that's bordering on arrogance when you start to say, I know what's caused this. I know there must be sin in your life. I think we should hold back those kinds of judgments, and I'm going to prove to you why. Let's read in Job chapter 4. Now, if you have your Bible in this Bible study, this is where you want to be looking, all right? Read along with me. I want to read a couple of uh, portions here. Uh, in this uh, section here. Now, in Job chapter 4 and verse 1, footnote, Job is a complicated book. It, it's not not always an easy book to understand, but I, I'd like to give you a little portion of it here. Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, so Job is speaking, and then Eliphaz uh, makes a comment. Now, Eliphaz is a symbol of uh, dogmatism. He's a dogmatic person. And in my Bible, I have a Schofield Bible. In the bottom of it, there, uh, it 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 talks a little bit about the symbol of Eliphaz and and what he really stands for. And he's going to describe or declare the causes of Job's misfortune here. And he's really being presumptuous. He's making statements that um, sound very sure. Uh, he's got a default understanding that if Job's got this level of trouble in his life, he must have some level of sin in his life. And this is what he says now. Watch this in verse 3. Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholded him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. Job has done good things, and he admits that. He said, Job, you have strengthened the feeble knees of people, and you have given us, you're, you're a teacher, and you've done good things. We'll admit that. But... Verse 5, there it is. But now has come upon thee, and thou, thou faintest. That now it has come upon thee. Now this trouble has come upon thee, and thou faintest. You got no more strength left. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. You don't have a solution. You can't bring, you can't reverse any of this. This is what he says to Job. You've been a good man, but now you have problems. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, watch what he says, whoever perished being innocent or where were the righteous cut off? 
In other words, show me a place where righteous people suffered at the hand of God. Show me a place where uh, the, uh, the, the whoever perished being innocent. Everyone who has ever perished has been guilty. And, and you're, you're saying you're not guilty. Or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen that they plow iniquity and sow wickedness, reap the same. Look at it again. Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness, they reap the same. By the blast of God, they perished, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. So therefore, if you're, if you're reaping wickedness and, and trouble here, you must have sown it somehow. And this is the default thinking of the comforters who came to Job. And the idea is, look, Job, uh, admit it, confess your sin, ask for God's mercy, throw yourself at, on, on the on the uh, mercies of God and, and see what God will do. That's the logical thing to do. Now, I'd like to say that. I, I get that. I, I, I Even though it's wrong in this case, I understand where... Uh, this this happens. I understand where people get that idea. For instance, you know, when you look at Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, you read that whole chapter and it talks about how that God goes down, looks at, at Sodom, sees the wickedness and judges that place. So in other words, they sowed iniquity, they reaped destruction. And I, that's the Bible. I mean, that's, uh, I get that. But this kind of thinking right here is what I want to zone in on tonight, all right? I'm not going to be long, but I want you just to look at this kind of thinking with me. And this is, now don't don't put me out of, don't cut me off the broadcast here and don't put me out of the message here, but I want to explain what this is. This is what's called a syllogism. Let's define it. A syllogism. Now you've, maybe you're not familiar with that word, but you've heard the concept. It It is an argument. It is a conclusion which is supported by two thoughts. First, the major premise contains, and this is funny, all right? I'm saying this because it's funny. I didn't edit it because it's funny. The major premise contains the major term, that is the predicate of the conclusion, and the other minor premise contains the minor term, that is the subject of the conclusion. Common to both premises is a term, or the middle term, that is excluded from the conclusion. A typical form is all A is C, all B is A, Therefore, all B is C. I think that's pretty clear. So we would say something like this. All roses are red. All tall flowers are roses. Then all tall flowers are red. Now, all those statements may be true, but the conclusion is not. Okay? That's called a syllogism. Now, drop down to the bottom part of this. That's called deductive reasoning, and that's logic. It is an extremely subtle, sophisticated, or deceptive argument. So in other words, it would go like this. God sends calamity on wicked people only. You have suffered a calamity. Therefore, you must be wicked. Do you see the reasoning? Do you, see the, do you, do you understand where I'm going? If God sends a calamity, calamity or destruction, he only sends calamity upon wicked people. You have suffered a calamity. That's obvious, Job. So therefore, you must be wicked. That's the logic by which they put this together. Job himself avoids this. But it's a very common thing. Uh, it's a very common thought of what's called divine retribution. 
which means that God blesses those who are faithful and he punishes those who are sinful. And that's what divine retribution means. Now, you, you, <laughs> uh, I, I wish we had a little more time really to deal with this. Isn't it true that sometimes, you know, if you're with somebody and they've gone through a loss or maybe they've gotten bad news from the doctor or they lose a child or something or other happens, many times it's very difficult to suffer with somebody without trying to piece it together, without trying to help them make sense out of it and to try to figure it out. And our instinct is to provide reasons for why things went wrong so we can get back to normal. We love normal. As human beings, we love normal. And we, we want to investigate things logically so that we can figure out, ah, okay, that happened because that happened. And if we fix that, then this will be fixed. And then we can go back to where we were and we can get there as soon as possible. Job's comforters fell into this mode of thinking. And it is a real trap for people to fall into that. And especially well-meaning people, because, Listen, isn't it true? We often don't even understand the reason for our own suffering, let alone someone else's. And I was saying to somebody today, uh, I was we were I was talking about this subject in a different context altogether. But I, I was saying to somebody that when you see a person in their life and they go through maybe they might go through multiple problems or multiple things all at once, that sometimes that is a a way that God is pulling out all the resources that we've leaned on and learned to lean on because he's trying to get a message to you. I want you to lean on me. I don't want you to be led by your financial success. I don't want you to be led by your brains. I don't want you to be led by your degree. I don't want you to be led by the crowd. I want you to be led by me. So sometimes God will pull out the rug from underneath your feet and allow you to stand there and say, I don't know why this happened to me. And the best kind of comfort you can give to somebody who is in that position is to say, I don't know why this happened. Nobody should really have to go through this. But you know what? If we can just remain still and silent before God and not say stupid things, then you know what? God may give us the answer we're seeking here. God may give us something that helps us to overcome. God may help redirect us because that's what we need to have happen here. It's easy to put the blame on Job in a situation like this, and they're determined to do that. Let's go a little further. Uh, go up to, to Job 22. Uh, you, they don't give up on this, okay? They, they, they're still convinced that there is some sort of a, all A is C, all B is A, therefore B is C. So God brings calamity on people who are wicked. You've suffered a calamity, therefore you must be wicked. They don't give up on this in, in the whole book here. Chapter 22, verse 5. Is not thy wickedness great and thine iniquities infinite? They don't have any proof of that. That's the default. That's their assumption. For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught, and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink. Thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had it in the earth, and the honorable man dwell in it. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. You must have done something. You must have done something that, uh, you know, you deprived the widows of, of water. Uh, you have, uh, you know, broken the arms of the, of the father or the orphans. 
you, you have holden, taken bread away from those that are hungry. You must have done something. Because God does not bring calamity except for the wicked. You have a calamity, therefore you must be wicked. You understand how important a default understanding can be and how important it is to change that default if it's not right. Now, an absolute is different, but you can see, I think, the difference between an, uh, an absolute and a, uh, a, a default understanding of things. All right, now watch what watch what Brother Branham says. This is the Church Age book. Now, there's a couple of screens here. Stay with me. There he is, the chief shepherd of the flock. Now, watch, watch how Brother Branham describes him as a shepherd of the flock. Does he hold back the persecution? Does he stem the tribulation or stop the tribulation? No, he does not. He simply says, I know your tribulation. I am not at all unmindful of your suffering. And what a stumbling block that is to so many people. Like Israel, they wonder if God really loves them. How can God be just and loving if he stands by and watches his people suffer? Let me tell you, that's a stumbling block for many, many people that they feel like they're really blessed and God loves them if they're prospering and they're happy and everything is going great. And as soon as things turn, they feel like, oh, I must be in trouble. And their own default is to believe that uh, God doesn't love them. Now watch what he explains here. That is what they asked in Malachi 1, 1 to 3. You see, they could not figure out God's love. Israel, Israel couldn't figure out God's love. They thought that love meant no suffering. How many would agree? that your our default understanding would be something like that, that they think that love meant no suffering. Now, our understanding's grown, but back at some point in time, your thinking was probably that way. They thought that love meant a baby with parental care. But God said that his love was elective love, and the proof of his love is election. No matter what happened, his love was proven truly by the fact that they were chosen unto salvation, because God has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. He may commit you to death like he did Paul. He may commit you to, do, to suffering as he did Job. That is his prerogative. He is sovereign. But it is all with a purpose. If he did not have a purpose, then he would be the author of frustration and not of peace. His purpose is that after we have suffered a while, we would be made perfect, be established, strengthened, and settled. You see, he himself suffered, and he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He was actually made perfect by the things he suffered. We find it in Hebrews 5. In plain language, the very character of Jesus was perfected by suffering. And according to Paul, he has left his church a measure of suffering that they too, by their faith in God, while suffering for him, would come to a place of perfection. Wow, that's just an amazing thing. To me, that makes it makes so much sense out of the struggles we go through. You can go through troubles. You know, Brother Josh Godman down there, you know, and, and his family with, with upsets that they have. You know, we could talk about, uh, you know, different families in the, in the church and, uh, you know, upsets and job losses and changes and sickness and, you know, Sister Carol and, uh, you know, Sister Amber and different ones are going through. Brother Ron Spencer, let me tell you, I told Brother Ron Spencer, I said, God must really love you 
put you through all of the things that he's put you through. It's not because he doesn't love you. It's it's because that he does, and he knows that you'll have faith, and he, he bringing out that faith in your heart and in your in your life here. God's got a purpose in all of it. We may not see that purpose as we go through it. We may not understand how all those pieces come together, but that's why you need to appeal to the mind of Christ, because that's what brings it all together. Like a long length of, of wool, it brings it all together into a sweater or scarf or a pair of mittens, because it is an instruction by the Holy Spirit. It is the thing that the Holy Spirit does with our simple mind to be able to put things together and give us the understanding that we need to have. Our suffering makes sense when we know that God's behind it. We know our suffering makes sense when we know that God, in a sense, has ordained it because he's got a purpose in everything. He does not delight in senseless suffering. So therefore, Matthew 11 Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy. Let me tell you something. Your yoke is easy as long as you're both going in the same direction. When two animals in the yoke who are yoked together decide to go on different paths, all of a sudden we introduce pain. And Jesus says, the whole idea of being yoked with me is that you will follow me my way. I am the one who's in the lead. And therefore, many of the problems that we face, listen, many of the problems that we face is not a lack of money or jealousy or different things like that. Those are all attributes of the fact that you're not giving the Lord Jesus lordship in your life. When he leads you the right way, when you follow him in the yoke, he's not going to lead you to destruction. He's going to lead you to the right place. He's going to lead you the right way. And for instance, he, he said, if, if for instance you would pay your tithes, then I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. If we, if we have a financial issue, many times it's because we veered away from where he was trying to take us. Not all the time, but many times that's what, what happens. Many problems we have is a lack of lordship, not a lack of money or a lack of resources. When we're yoked with him, we walk with him continually. And so therefore, it is important for us to, uh, you know, to let him take, take the reins in our life because <laughs> he, wants you to, he wants you to exercise bold faith. God wants you to exercise bold faith. But bold faith, I'm telling you, stands on the shoulders of quiet trust. Bold faith does not come by itself. Bold faith has something anchored. We have to have something to anchor to. And bold faith stands on quiet trust. And so therefore, our trust is that if I'm in the yoke with him, he's going to lead me the right way. The way may be difficult. And I mean, there might be troubles along the pathway that we have. But nonetheless, I know that he's in control. And that's my confidence. That's my faith. And when you find yourself in deep waters, or you find yourself in difficulty, 
but I know I'm yoked with Christ. I know I'm walking with him. Then you know what? My trust is in him and it, it's going to work out okay. Uh, it, it's, it's going to be fine. It's going to happen God's way. Let's go a little further here. Can everybody hear me? Fellowship, 1955. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Go out here in this and that, dilly-dallying around, opening yourself up to those parties and dances and things. Keep yourself away from it. Get yourself, get yourself with Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So that's Brother Branham's example as well. You can be unequally yoked. It's going to bring you to the wrong thing. When you're yoked with Christ, it's going to bring you to a higher ground. It's going to, it's going to bring you to the completion of the journey or the purpose that God has for you. And so we want to be we want to be harnessed to go in the right direction. Now, again, uh, I've just got two statements here that I want to give to you. The other night, Brother Bram said the Lord gave me a, a message on resting, and he said the whole Christian principle, the whole Christian life is based on rest. And I said, why are we troubled? This is what Brother Bram said in just in, in, in his own thinking. Why are we troubled? Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said, we're just resting. Come to me and you shall find rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Finding rest. That's what the whole Christian life and the whole Christian journey is based on, is this finding rest. And I said, when you once come to Christ and believe him and accept him and enter into rest, all things of the world seem to die away. You've got rest and rest to your soul. As you enter into that state, there you are, and you enter into that state, then circumstances really don't matter. What the opinion of the world is really doesn't matter. You're willing to lay down your default understanding of everything and pick up only that which the word declares. So the absolute becomes what matters. As long as your default ma matches the absolute, no problem. But to be found fighting against God and say, well, you know, I can do a little of this and I can do a little bit of that and I can live this way and live that way. Uh, you're, you're, you're moving in another direction in the yoke away from him and that's going to cause you trouble. So Brother Branham says, the whole Christian journey, the whole Christian experience really is based on rest. We find today, and I was, I was actually getting my hair cut, and uh, the, the barber and people around in the barbershop, they were all talking about how angry everyone is. And I, I, didn't, I didn't start this conversation. They were just talking about it and how they were saying how, how angry. And everybody who's smiling and wishing you that you hope you have a good day. They were saying none of them mean it. Everybody's angry. Everybody's upset. Everybody's fed up. Everybody's tired and frustrated with the circumstances that we live in. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's a thing that I you know I I I don't think that way. I uh, it was kind of a shock to me, and I was thinking this this is not the way I'm thinking. And and it began to dawn on me that as a believer. Um, how could I, how could I be mad at this circumstance when this is just exactly what the Bible says, that the world's falling apart? Uh, I'm, I rather see it very clearly as we're living in a time when prophecy is being fulfilled. You can see every day we wake up, we're reminded of prophecy being fulfilled. 
nations breaking and all the other changes and things that are taking place in the world. And to me, it's not a reason for anger. It is a reason for hope that this thing will indeed come to an end and there'll be good things in store for God's people. And I was amazed, though, at how uh, how frustrated they were and how frustrated they uh, sounded in talking about this whole subject even and how many people they knew that truly were unhappy. They were angry and wanted everything to change. So in other words, their peace depends on circumstances. Their peace depends on exterior elements. It isn't true. Our rest is in Christ. Our rest is being yoked with him. Our rest is in this journey, living in a way that matches everything in his kingdom. Let me give you this final quote, and then we'll, we'll stop. Forgive our many weaknesses, Lord. We don't intend to do anything wrong. But through, through flesh, we do make mistakes daily. So in order to stay alive in Christ, we have to die to our own thoughts. So keep us dead to ourselves and alive in him. Let our bodies be so, and our souls so submissive to him, that people will see the reflection of Christ as we go or come or whatever we do. I was encouraging those people today, uh, you know, we we're talking about anger in the barbershop, and I was encouraging them that, you know, they, they, they need to find something more solid than the media and the government and everything else in order to uh, overcome the feelings of anger and frustration. They're never going to get a perfect news broadcast that uh, gives them the peace they're looking for. They'll never have joy looking at another program or listening to some other politician make promises. The peace that a Christian really has is because it, it comes from Christ. It's, it's deep within. And I believe that every one of us, we strive for that. Even though we live in this world with them, we, we strive for that peace and, and we have, uh, we have a, a joy and a rest that really the world doesn't even recognize. God has put the scriptures together. He's, he's, he's tutored you. He's taught you so that you will know exactly what's taking place. And you can make sense out of the times we live in. Our default sometimes can get us into trouble, like Job's comforters. We can make assumptions that really can be incorrect. That's why James said, when you say, well, we'll go here and we'll go there, he said, you ought to say, the Lord will. The Lord willing will do it. Because at the end of the day, what matters is what he thinks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the understanding you have given us of the Word of God. We have often said that. But Lord, the more we understand about the Bible, the more we understand about the Word of God, how grateful we are that you have presented us, you have tutored us into a certain way of thinking and uncovered our eyes so we have a certain way of seeing and judging correctly. We would not even know what to judge. We would not even know what to analyze unless we had the mind of Christ. But Lord, you have given us that ability. You have given us that gift of discernment, of judgment, of being able to 
take these scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit to bring them together into a clear understanding for us. We thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you that we're living in the time we live in. May we be witnesses and may we be light in a dark time. I pray, Lord, that you would be our guide. I pray that you would be our strength and put words in our mouth. I pray, Lord, that when we run into people who are hurting and angry, that we might be able to comfort them with the truth. I pray, Lord, for those that are sick tonight, all those that need your touch. We think especially of Sister Carol, but Lord, there are many others and many in our assembly and many others we know, loved ones that we care for, people who are struggling with this virus and Lord, people who have other conditions as well. And, and we just we just pray, dear God, that you would extend comfort and relief and healing to those who are reaching out to you now. Bless our assembly. Lord, keep us safe, I pray. Keep us open. Keep us in the center of your will, I pray, in all of our decisions. Guide us and tend to the flock, Lord. We give you the reins of the flock. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's lovely name. Amen and amen. God bless you, saints, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on the weekend. And may the Lord richly bless you.